Welcome to Roland's Rant. Today I am joined by Chris Cote. Chris is a multimedia sports personality, and to be honest, he is much more than that, but we will hopefully go a long way in explaining that to the listeners as this podcast progresses. So anyway, Chris, I hope all is well, and thanks a million for taking time out to come on the show. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm here in Encinitas, California, just north of San Diego. It's supposed to be summer, but we're in a, a phase we call June gloom here, and it's gray, mm. and it's windy. And it's not quite summer yet. Where are you? Where yeah. are you? Where are you right now? I'm I'm currently in Dublin. It's half ten, and we constantly have June gloom, even okay. in July and August. And it's been pretty much raining for the last four or five weeks. But hopefully, things uh, pick up soon. Hopefully. Okay. So I will get no sympathy from you. I understand that. <laughs> no zero. Because yeah. I actually uh, was in the West Coast about two years ago, and we went in June, and the weather was very gloomy so to speak and we actually found out all about the whole june gloom thing when we were in la when we were in san diego we were like why is it so overcast and every single uber driver and every single person we uh spoke to kept bringing up the phrase it's june gloom so i'm well versed in that area oh man i'm sorry you gotta come back come back in september it'll be long gone by then yeah that's what we're uh going to plan to do next time we go go when it's actually meant to be sunny awesome um speaking of california that's that's where you grew up, and from my short stint there, I've been there two or three times. It, California kind of tends to present a certain way of life to the youth that is there, so to speak. And like, what did your school days and college days present to you, and what sort of things did your life consist of back then? I mean, growing up literally two blocks from the beach is it really does shape. I feel like it, it shapes who you are more often than not, when you grow up this close, you're going to, you know, you're going to be into surfing. You're going to be into boogie boarding and all that when you're growing up. And that is going to most, most likely lead you into other things like skateboarding and, you know, this, the basic kind of Southern California outdoor lifestyle vibe. So that was really what it was, what it was all about for myself, my friends, my family, you know, the beach, we didn't have, we didn't have phones, obviously, growing up. So it was like, what do you do? You just go outside. You play. You go to the beach. You know, you everything kind of started to revolve around were the waves good? If the waves aren't good, you went skating. You know, I, I grew up really close to the Del Mar Skate Ranch, just a legendary, iconic early skate park where every day – Tony Hawk would be learning, you know, creating, discovering new tricks. You know, it was the epicenter of skateboarding at the time, late 80s. And then, you know, from there, the street skating explosion kind of coinciding with the explosion of surfing, turning into kind of like aerial aerial tricks and all that. Um, so it, I was fortunate, very fortunate to grow up right here in the hub of surfing skating you know eventually punk rock all these things were happening within an hour of my house so it was you know you'd be you would have to try i guess not to be influenced by all these things happening around you so Hmm. i'm very lucky and i never and i never take it take it or took it for granted that i grew up in such an amazing place so that's you know I don't like to use the word blessed, but I'm blessed, man. (laughs) (laughs) And did that lead you? Because nowadays, as 
I said you were you do multiple things. You've got your own podcast and stuff like that. But back then, as you're saying, you're experiencing skateboarding, surfing, and then also another hugely influential time in music and punk rock and kind of rock music was that end of 80s to 90s to very early 2000s and like what was it more or less all of them tied together so if you did skateboarding you'd become a surfer and then also if you were good at surfing you'd end up wanting to play in some sort of band or how did you initially get into music because as you said the other the other two passions of your skateboarding and surfing were pretty much forced on you because as you said you were right beside a beach yeah i think i think growing up then was a cool time because you know you start off uh influenced by your parents as to whatever they're listening to for me it was like classic rock and all that stuff my parents always had music on um then you kind of get into your own thing where you know my brother started showing me bands friends started showing me bands but then the real kicker was when mtv started i was right there watching mtv as much as possible and then from there skate videos surf videos um really dictated what you listened to like okay these are Mm -hmm. my bands right and then you know you start to get into things like tony hawk pro skater and video games where even subconsciously you start to hear these songs over and over and over while you're concentrating on playing the game these songs are being embedded in your skull so kind of the influential sphere of music around you parents friends relatives and then it becomes kind of it goes out a little bit more to um you know the videos that you were seeing and then i feel like from there you have this pretty solid base to where you're really pre-spotify pre-youtube and all that you could really go out and you had to hunt for it you had to go to record stores you had to find that fringe group of kids at your school and you're like oh i gotta know what they're listening to because they look like they're doing something cool so yeah. it it kind of like you're you're handed all these influences and then it's up to you to take that and go explore on your own. And so I, I feel like I have a very kind of wide palette of music that I like and that's due to just being open to all these influences coming in. Yeah, no that's that's an important aspect cuz especially nowadays and it's it's hard to maybe compare it to 15 20 years ago but it's it's much more forced into your ear rather than um it being a natural organic process um with youtube with spotify and even with social media so algorithms are algorithms are telling us what we like yeah precisely (laughs) (laughs) as you were saying like that's that's one of the passions you developed and i was listening to a podcast you did as well and you had a short stint um when you were a drum tech for blink 182 um in the 90s and before you got into the commentating you do now the podcast and the work with the magazines like how how do you end up i know at the time they weren't obviously the force they are now but how did you end up working for them and how long did that last for i was kind of in a lost period of time then just working you know kind of get getting over my idea that I was going to be a pro surfer. And so I was mm. kind of working at surf shops, getting jobs in the surf industry, floating around, having fun. My friend uh, Rick, who was their manager at the time, saw that they were growing, you know, the, the momentum started and was like, yo, they need a drum tech. And it was for the previous, for Scott Rayner, the first drummer. 
So I kind of, and I was a little bit of a drummer, so I knew, I knew how to set up drums, but definitely by no means like a trained drum tech mm. or roadie. So I kind of just figured it out as we went. And then they switched from Scott to Travis and I stayed on. Travis was just kind of like, oh, cool. Yeah, I've never had a drum tech either. So <laughs> stoked. Here you go. And his drum sets were way more advanced. So I had to learn quick. Um, one of my jobs was tuning the drums. And every time I just tuned them so bad. And every time he would sit down and just look at me like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> this is yeah. wrong. I did my best. And I did it for a couple of years. And then by the time he started doing flips and Tommy Lee style escapades in his drums, I was out. I can't figure that out. Let's leave that <laughs> to the experts. So I, I, I did it, toured with them for, uh, I want to say probably two, three years. And in that time, I felt that I had a more evolved musical uh, taste or, you know, a, a, a broader palette in terms of music. So all they listened to mm. was punk, the pop punk. Yeah. And I would always give them shit telling them, <laughs> you know, like, dude, have you even heard of Fugazi? Do you know what Sonic Youth is? Do you, do you know one David Bowie song? And mm. so it kind of built up to where I was just telling them that, you know, their band is terrible. They're getting, meanwhile, they're getting huge <laughs> selling out arenas. Yeah. And I'm like, you guys, this music is bad. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta change. You gotta listen to, you know, some indie rock. You gotta do, do something different. And they're going, well, you know, our band's a little bit more popular than your band. And I didn't have a band at the time. I had like made up a band. And so to kind of just make fun of them. And so mm -hmm. I, I, I named this band. There's a fake band cut you up. And eventually they said, well, we, we'll have your band that's so good. We'll have you guys open up for an arena show in San Diego. And so I made a band with my friends. We practiced. We played one show. It's our second show ever as a band, as Cut You Up, was opening for Blink and uh, Weezer. Or was it just Blink? It was opening up for Blink on an arena show. That was okay. our second show ever. <laughs> Not a bad start. Yeah, we did get booed for a good portion of our set, but by the end of our set, people were feeling it. Good. Uh, that, that leads me on to a topic that I personally want to cover because it was only a few weeks ago I rewatched. And for those who are not aware, there's a documentary, and it's still, in one of my views, one of the best music documentaries out there called Riding in Vans with Boys. And that's where you and your band cut you up. And this is the very early th 2000s and in well, I could be wrong, but like it seemed to be that 2000 to 2005 period seemed to be the peak of tour and it seemed to be the peak of pop rock. And you got to tour with Blink-182 and Green Day and even Jimmy Eat World as well. And um, like it showed the highs and lows of being in the band, especially when you were looking at the glories of the Blink lifestyle with the Green Day lifestyle. And then you had you guys basically <laughs> in our van. Money. Yeah, making up slightly erotic games of chicken while yeah. you had the rest of the guys in their um, hotel rooms. But like, what are some of the memories you remember from that period? And like, what was where, like when or what happened in we, relation to Blink finally asking you on that tour? So we just, you know, we've been friends with those dudes forever. And I think they, so they had a company, Atticus, and Macbeth, and we were kind of like the one of the bands that 
was I sponsored or ambassadors for those companies. So the idea came about, you know, let's sneak, basically like sneak these guys on this mega tour. Mm. They don't get the, the, the rockstar perks. You know, they paid our gas money, which we would always waste and spend on other things and have to beg for more money. Um, you know, it was, it was an experiment. It was an idea to film this documentary to, you know, this is again, kind of when reality shows and all that were starting. So it was a early reality show esque type of, uh, type of film. And, mm. you know, it's funny looking back when you were just talking about it, I, I kind of just realized that even though they had the buses, fancy hotel rooms, played the big stage, um, had all the perks guess which band had the most fun on that tour that was us. put you up <laughs> so yeah. it really it really shows in looking back that you know for me being in a band was never about making popular music or you know writing hits of course that would have been awesome but it was more about being with your friends and experiencing everything from in our case you know from playing in a backyard at to four people to playing a huge show and you know we we really i think we took full advantage of every second we had on that tour because i think you know to be a in a successful rock band or to really make that your life you have to be fully dedicated to that and only that no matter what and i think in in the case of cut you up is we all have and we, we all had other jobs we all had different interests and while we all love and are dedicated to the band still are it's just we you know we were at the time as dedicated to partying as we were to playing music and i think eventually that we are lucky to have survived and come out of that time with all of our limbs and brains still attached to our bodies because we tried a couple tours after that and they did not go well we were out of control and now three fourths of the band are sober, so that shows you what uh, attempting <laughs> effect how, it can have. Yeah, what attempting a life in, in rock and roll can do. It can be very destructive if you're not careful. And it covers. There's a lot of good and bad, as I said there, and as you said, and like one of the the great parts of it is that you, it was mainly about you guys, and then the, had a few moments where they showcased the other bands and those good interactions from band members, but. Like apart from say when you get branded, I'm sure it gets brought up every time you meet some stranger who's seen the documentary in which Billy Joe and yourself admittedly thought it'd be a good idea to what light up a pool cue. Um, oh yeah, the bridge. Great idea. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, was there not a time when you accepted? You were like, yeah, let's do it. Because the reason I say this is because two or three of my friends uh, reminded me that I had a similar situation, not myself. But we did a similar thing to a friend of ours at a party about two years ago in which we branded him on his knee and he had a scarf for about six years and we pretty much were really upset about the whole thing after it happened. And you, guys were, grow- you guys were grown-ups when you did this. Yeah, we were technically adults, <laughs> um, but still youths at heart. But like st- stuff like that, that's torn in a nutshell in my view, but... Was there any moments that the camera didn't catch, good or bad, that you can recall and think back to and think, Jesus, that was such a great or terrible experience? I think a lot of the the kind of 
things that happen between shows, whether it's the connections you have with your friends, right? You're in a van, there's five, five people in there, six people in there, you know, you and one of your friends up late into the night driving through somewhere you've never been and you're just looking out the windows and you're not talking, but you're just connecting it. It's such a different level. Um, think moments like that to where it's just very pure and it's a, a, a bonding moment that there's, there's an unspoken thing happening where you're just experiencing this together, right? It's not through a phone. It's not through watching a video or something. It's just you're experiencing this unknown together. So a lot of moments like that that you could never capture with a camera. They just happened. Um, and then, you know, I guess some of the, some of the other things, just the, the grossness of living in a van for two months with six dudes. <laughs> it's like yeah. the smell. You couldn't, you, you can't smell the van through the TV screen or your computer screen. <laughs> and if somehow we could re, re, uh, re-edit or re-release this film with some kind of smell of vision you could fully grasp the 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 that sensation that disgusting element of the tour um you know i mean i, I think for the most part i'm i'm with you and you didn't realize like how special that movie was not just to us but to a lot of people that watch it till a mm. couple years later when i look back and i go look that is as as perfect uh, a capture of a time of a place as you could get matt bouchane who filmed it had a broken arm while he was filming it and the fact that he got everything there's nothing that was left out that i would have wanted to be in there you know what i mean yeah and all the stuff the worst stuff that we did is all in there so <laughs> it true it truly was a an accurate portrayal of what was happening on that tour for sure and luckily yeah. we didn't film the the later tours because that's a whole like true Hollywood story, bands gone wrong type of thing that nobody needs to see. Yeah. And your point, you made the point there about touring and the purity of some of the moments. And in this case, it was you being in a van that smelt um, like that. <laughs> I'm trying to think of uh, Black Panther in Anchorman, the terrible, uh, potent aftershave that he sprays that uh is illegal in countries but anyway we're getting too bogged down into sense it it kind of captures the human side and the emotive emotion side of being in a band and the ups and downs and i've even heard some of the blink or green day members in even recent interviews they say that the art of touring is kind of it's not the same because each member of the band has has their families has their commitments outside of the band and it's very much they do their own t thing treat it like a job and then go home straight after the gig while in this it just seemed to be one ginormous party across america with people getting to know each other for the first time and it was really really just a pure pure documentary and for any music music fans or even any fans of documentaries i'd implore them to uh, go and see it or else I think it's online at this stage where you can stream it illegally. But And I agree. And, it. <laughs> <laughs> and and just to touch on it, you said it there that the lifestyle of being in a band, it's tough and I'm sure you're not the only one. There's countless musicians who have um, suffered with the lifestyle and trying to keep hold of it. And you said there that three out of the four members from Cut You Up are now sober. Like, was that, was that a kind of 
moment thing where you suddenly thought, okay, this has to stop? Or was it just a few months where you kind of spiraled out of, I don't want to say control, that sounds maybe overly harsh, but you just weren't yourself and you thought, you know what, it's best that I give up this to make sure that I can be a better person, et cetera, et cetera. I think it was a, you know, a mix. We had a, probably a couple years of serious uh, body torture and some of us got into more, you know, hard drugs and all that than others. Yeah. But I think kind of, I don't, I don't want to, uh, you know, it was Brandon Parkhurst was kind of the first of us, our, you know, guitar singer, yeah. spiritual guide. Um, he was, he went through a lot and he got himself sober and, you know, basically that definitely changed the dynamic of the band. It became like, okay, we're all, let's all unite here. I didn't get, I didn't stop drinking till five years ago. So I think, you know, for, for him, it was life or death type of thing. For me, yeah. it was more of just this cycle of constant numbness from booze and that booze leading to just bad decision-making. And it just kind of stopped working, right? You know, the, yeah alcohol for me just i just kind of stopped working and so i stopped drinking and it was kind of a mix of a couple different benders in a row and then you know that cycle of just beers on beer just the, the endless cycle right i just needed to break yeah. that break that cycle and so you know now it's when you're an adult, it's harder to be in a band in general. And I think if we threw drugs and alcohol on top of that, it would be impossible. So, you know, it's definitely kind of solidified us as friends and as a band because we won't play for a year or whatever. And when we all decide to get back into it, it just happens real quick. And it's, you know, it's like an old, it's like getting with an old lover, right? <laughs> it's awkward at first. You're kind of trying to figure out, you know, where you guys are now but then once things start moving, you know, you get right back into that that same yeah. kind of flow that you had before. So that's that's what it's like for us. We're like four just lovebirds getting back together and things are weird at first, but once we start going at it, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's back it's to like normal. Times. Yeah. Exactly. And it's it's interesting you say that your close friends uh did the same as you. And like, I think of say someone being in a similar situation and trying to do that in Dublin, Ireland, it would be considerably tougher than say doing it in San Diego. It's, I'm not trying to say it wouldn't be as tough, but just the the culture and the society in which you found yourself surrounded in, was that a very supportive one at the time? Because like if I say try to give up alcohol and everything else, by the time it hits this time tomorrow, I would have seen probably a hundred people drinking because that's the culture of Ireland. That's what everyone just labels us as. But was the close proximity of family and friends and even the extended um, community very helpful in that time? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you definitely figure out who your real friends are. For me, I think you know, my dad stopped drinking. Brandon was a huge inspiration and I, I I think it's you know it's going to be a challenge wherever you are, and you know nobody can t tell you. I was told a million times by my ex wife, by whoever parents, you need to 
chill. You know, you need to stop. You need to do this. But I'm like, I'm good. It's not until you can admit it or want to admit it to yourself. Sounds cliche, but once you decide that you're done, that's the only way that you're going to really be done. Um, you know, and, and I definitely feel for, you know, people from everywhere. I mean, my whole, I, I work in the surf skate action sports industry and this is a party industry every you know every meeting every lunch every event really almost centers around partying drinking yeah. the whole thing so in a way i'm i'm i guess i'm kind of like it's like i'm in ireland sometimes because <laughs> everyone around me is drinking and i'm still you know i still hang out at bars i still go to tons of shows I, i'm my girlfriend drinks you know so it's not my whole family yeah. still does so it's not like um it was this mass movement i just think for me it, it happened at the right time and i had the right kind of support group around me and now i try to open myself up and do my best to just whatever i can do to help people if they want my advice i'd never come out and tell someone like you drink too much you need to stop if it was yeah. something crazy if it was a real problem of course i would but I don't, I'm not judgy or anything like that. If somebody reaches out to me, I do my best to, best to give them whatever advice that I can. I mean, I'm definitely not perfect. And I don't even consider myself quote unquote sober. I just don't drink. Mm. And uh, that's kind of what works for me. And it's helped me with my career, my family, everything. So it's, it's kind of the proof is, is in the pudding for me personally that that's the decision that I needed to make. Well, that's, that's inspiring to hear Chris. And thanks for um, sharing your story behind that. So to kind of go a bit more uplifting and away from um, the past and being stuck in vans with people and odors and stuff like that. Smelly dudes drunk. Yeah. Just <laughs> Which is <smell>. great. <laughs> um, but like nowadays you do some commentating on skating and surfing events. You have your own podcasts. Uh, you help companies with their marketing and social media. And you even have time, if I'm not mistaken, to be an editor-in-chief for a magazine. So if I'm right in saying all of those things, how, how do you find a life balance with, as you were saying, with with friends and family and your work? I feel like uh, I've I've done every job and I've kind of figured out what I love to do. And, you know, I try to do all of, all of my jobs as good as I can. Mm. And if I feel like one of them is slipping, I'll just, you know, I kind of re recalibrate the attention I'm giving to it. Um, I just love to allow myself the time to go skateboarding when I want to, to go surf when I want to, to pick up my kids from school anytime. You know, I, I love the freedom of that. While yeah. I am super busy and I travel a ton, you know, I see it as leading by example to my kids of, look, you can work hard, you can have tons of fun, um, you know, and I love the idea of being multifaceted and, you know, ego wise, it's, it's fun to surprise people like what you, you, you just recorded an album, like mm. you're going to Brazil to do this event. How did you do that? And that, you know, so it's, in a way, it's kind of fun, that challenge of doing everything and trying to do everything well. Um, mm. Sometimes it gets me in trouble when I try to take on too much. 
But again, I mean, and I know to go back, it's like if I was getting loaded all the time, I probably wouldn't be able to do all this stuff. So yeah. I have a lot of energy and everything I'm doing is, is something that is something I love, whether it's doing or talking about surfing, skating, snowboarding, playing music, writing, um, podcasting, which started truly as a, just a fun way to talk about all this shit that I like yeah. has become a thing, you know, now we have sponsors and now it's, you know, now it's kind of a becoming more of an uh, entity in my work canon, if you will. So they're all fun jobs. And I, I'm lucky to have, even if I only had one of these jobs, I'd be lucky. So to have five or six of them is, is a, it's a balancing act for sure. But, you know, I try to maintain my level at all of them and do as, as good a job as I can with every one I do. I just started a, a relatively new one the past couple of weeks. It's called WSL Surf Breaks, host okay. and producer of a daily news program. Uh, for World Surf League, and it's a it's basically a minute and a half morning, a minute and a half evening, just news that's happening in surf specific space, uh, and it's it's just launched and it's going crazy. So that's really fun to see. I mean, we're we're looking at I don't know uh, an audience of four to six million at any given time, mm, and that's it's it's pretty solid numbers. Yeah, it's a new challenge, and it's you know it's super fun. I love getting that challenge and trying to attack it. Um, I just recorded two new songs with just myself, play drums, uh, keyboard, bass, guitar, and sing. And again, I, I don't consider myself uh, even adequate musician at any of those instruments or singing, yeah. but I'm just like, heavily, heavily into the YOLO kind of vibe, like screw it, I'm just gonna do it. Nobody told me I could sing or write songs or record or whatever, but also nobody told me I couldn't. So I just assumed that I should. And so I did. And those are coming out soon. <laughs> so watch <laughs> the space. stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm super busy, but I'm having fun doing all these things. Mm. And I, like, as you said, when you were growing up, surfing was such a, a massive part of your life. And now that, you get to attend events and commentate and as you're saying, do work with different media companies and magazines, et cetera. I'm sure it's a really enjoyable and interesting thing to be able to travel. And as I said, do loads of different things involving a sport that you love. But like from me being in Ireland, number one, beaches, et cetera, they just don't really exist here because the water's too cold and the waves don't really exist. So in San Diego or California in general, I've been to Ocean Beach, I've been to Huntington Beach, all those coasts. I've been there, I've attempted to surf myself, um, not to a high level at all, to a very poor one at that. But speaking of surfing as a sport, like is is the sport in a healthy place from a popularity and global coverage point of view? Or like say comparing it to maybe 10 years ago when it, well, maybe 20 years ago when it blew up, does it need another kind of resurrection a bit like maybe the skateboarding scene or is it in a very healthy place? I'd say very healthy. You know, I, th I think that through social media, through television coverage, you know, big events happening. And then of course with the Olympics coming up in 2020, including surfing, it's, and also access to the boards. You can go in any you know, big box store that sells 
you know, couches or what, I don't know, whatever, sporting goods stores, and you can buy a surfboard. So I, surfing, I think, is bigger than ever. And there's so many different kind of genres within the sport of surfing that there's really something for everyone. I mean, that goes all the way from big wave surfing to, you know, surfing behind a boat, wake surfing, to now what has kind of been a, a huge factor in surfing's growth is wave pools that are going in all over the world. I believe yeah, uh, I've seen videos of them. Yeah, I mean you you're going to you're going to have them all over Europe soon. We're we're they're starting to pop up around America. And these are not easy to build, but they're they're coming and they're 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 going in the ground in places like Texas uh you know just all all over the world and everyone's going to have access to waves to surf soon. So you don't have to, you know, you talk about surfing in Ireland and I see Irish surfing in these guys are some of the gnarliest surfers on the planet. <laughs> There's not a big number of them, but I'll tell you, Ireland has crazy waves, psychotic waves. <laughs> and I could see how it would be hard to learn how to surf there because every time I see waves in Ireland, they're death defying. So it's like yeah. not an easy, <laughs> an easy uh, learning curve. Uh, but I, I, long story short, I think I'd say, yes, yeah, surfing is in an incredible place right now, growing faster than ever. So it's 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 a lot is happening, and I got two two questions. One of the questions actually comes from someone who is currently in the West Coast at the minute, and I say you'll be in San Diego pretty soon. The next few days, there was two little questions, and the first one was like, as you were saying, you you were quite you're still a very impressive surfer from the videos I've seen. I could only dream of being able to do some of the stuff you can do on a surfboard, but for beginners, if someone whether they're t trying to take it seriously, trying to take it up, or just going out for a bit of banter. Like, what, is there any tips you can give to someone where they're like, oh, this actually kind of helps um, when starting out on the surfboard? I mean, I would say getting yourself the proper board, just a big, fat surfboard that you can easily stand up on um, is key. And, and then also just picking a place that is just friendly for beginning surfing. See, a lot of people try to learn how to surf in not scary waves, but just really kind of cr crunchy, bigger waves. And it's about finding a place that is going to give you that entry-level ease because I've seen it a lot of times where somebody tries to learn how to surf in kind of wild waves and they have a terrible experience and they never want to do it again. Um, learning how to surf as an adult is very, very hard. And most of it just comes from the, for me, paddling out, duck diving, getting myself from the beach out to where the waves are is muscle memory. I've been doing it forever, so it's easy for me. Mm. But for most people that have never done it, that's the hardest part. The ocean is very powerful, even when the waves look yeah. really small. So finding a place that is uh, easy entry-level waves with a giant board and don't be afraid to get a surf lesson because we're all kooks when we start. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Don't have pride when you try to learn how to surf because you will be humbled. Um, so I would say don't be afraid to take a surf lesson because then they have all the boards and they'll know where to take you. So it's just kind of like leave that guesswork to them. I agree. And it is a very humbling endeavor when you take a surfboard out to the ocean for yeah. your first go, time. Go learn how to surf in Hawaii where it's warm and the water's blue and life is good and then surf <laughs> everywhere else <laughs> and the last point um on the surfing um 
adventure, so to speak, the threat of sharks. So someone, I remember when I was surfing in Pacific Beach in San Diego, we had four surfboards in the house we were staying in and we rocked up something like Baywatch, except we were all terribly sunburnt and looked way out of shape. But anyway, we took our chances and we kind of walked up to the scene, suddenly realized that there was only about two other people in the sea. We were like, what's going on here? And there was, I think it was a bull shark or a tiger shark had just been spotted just off the coast, like five minutes prior to us arriving. So I suppose one of the questions is, like, is that even discussed on the surfing scene? I know now they have people watching out for sharks and there's warnings sent out and people are taken out of the the ocean and aren't allowed to surf if there's a threat of that. But like, how realistic and aware do you have to be when entering the ocean, especially, say, in California, where they would be prone to shark sightings rather than attacks? Um, I mean, it's so rare hmm. that it's it's kind of like the lightning doesn't strike twice thing. We've had one shark attack near my house. We have, I, 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 wanna, I would say we have one every 10 or so years. And I think for a lot of surfers, it's just that's, I don't even want to say a gamble or a risk because you don't really even think about it day on a daily. Most most people that surf regularly will surf every day, if not you know two to three times a week. So you're doing it a lot, but mm. if you think about it, it's one of those stats. You know, it's like you're more likely to get killed by a pig than <laughs> a shark, or you know, obviously the free. You've been on the freeways in San Diego and California. They're so scary, way scarier than yeah, any shark. Um, but you know, then you think of places in Australia, in, in Hawaii where you just, you just don't want to surf because there's a lot of sharks and you know, you're entering their house. So I can't blame them for fighting back. Um, but it's, I, I, I think most most surfers will tell you that it's not something you worry about on a day-to-day basis unless you're trying to surf somewhere that you just know is really sharky. Yeah. And then it's just more of like a spooky feeling. You're not scared per se. You're just kind of like aware. Yeah. And again, I think it's it's also one of those things that you're going to surf and it's really not up to you. There's nothing you can do to prevent a shark attack. So why worry about it if it's going to, yeah. you know, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Mm. So just kind of yeah. put it out of your mind. You know, it's not like rock climbing or something where, you know, okay, if I try this and I fall, I'm dead. Surfing, <laughs> you're like, if I try this, I'm probably not going to die. Probably not going to get attacked by a shark. It's very rare. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen it happen a few times in big televised events yeah. And we just we just seen recently uh, in an event in Australia where they had to put the event on hold multiple times because sharks came into where the surfers were. So that's a pretty cool thing about surfing that you're not going to go to a football game or a soccer game and have the officials call timeout because there's a, <laughs> a bear or a you know a tiger on the field. Um, you don't run the risk of being attacked by a, a, a wild beast when you're playing <laughs> cricket uh, or maybe you do in some places i don't know but maybe, maybe i think it's pretty pretty rad in surfing like this is an added bonus to the to the coolness side of it is like 
yeah, you know, we're surfing, we're having a good time. Could be eaten by a shark, but whatever. We're still going to do it. <laughs> kind of makes it sound pretty good. badass, but we don't think about it. I don't think about it that often. A similar enough topic, I should say, is even the, the skateboarding scene. And again, as you said earlier, people would be playing PlayStations, Tony Hawk games and playing them for hours and hours. I remember, what was it, 10 years ago, I'd be obsessed with Tony Hawk Underground and bought my first skateboards, made sure I got the best um, best wheels, best grip, best shoes, best knee pads, and I was hopeless. And the one day I actually did a kickflip, it was probably the proudest day of my life. But like the skateboard scene, similar enough question to the surfing world, and this this is just purely from my view, and this is way across a massive ocean that is probably ignorant to the the fact. But there was an early boom in say the early two thousands, where you, as you said, Tony Hawk, you had the likes of Rodney Mullen, Bam Margera, even from a more MTV type uh, alley. Um, like, is skateboarding as big as it was back then, or is it just be? Is it just because they had one or two massive household names back then that people sometimes think, oh, yeah, no skateboarding used to be better 15, 20 years ago, when in fact today it's it's bigger and better than ever before? Yeah, I think it's same same as surfing. You know, you got more – you got skate parks going into every town. You know, you got – you have skateboarding on TV every single weekend pretty much. It's all over Instagram. It's all over your computer. Um, so – Anyone can see it at any given time. Um, skateboarders used to be considered trash. You know, they were like the rejects of the school, the outcasts. And now yeah. um, everybody at the school is dressed up like a skater, even if, you know, skate or not. So it's not like it's an outlaw thing anymore. Um, I think with that, you, you have growth, good and bad. Uh, also the Olympics, it's not a huge factor into helping grow skateboarding right now. I think eventually it will more on a general scale because the, the core of skateboarding is going to skate regardless of where it's done or Olympics, drug testing, whatever skaters yeah. are going to skate. They're always going to skate the streets. No matter you will put a big, beautiful park in their town and they'll skate the hell out of it, but they're also going to skate the curves and the rails around that skate park. Yeah. So you're never going to stop that. And uh, again, I think skating like surfing is just in, a, in an incredible place. We're seeing a huge rise in not only the talent, but the numbers for female skating. You, you do tour was an event that just happened this last weekend. Um, you had a you know 10 year old girl getting third place in a field of the best park skaters in the world. Wow. You have countries like Japan, coming in so strong with so many talented skaters. I mean, globally skating is just skyrocketing because it matters to countries like Japan, China, you know, the fact that it's in the Olympics now has made it a real viable sport for their kids to do. Whereas before no interest, the parents did not want their kids to skate. Now skating and surfing is at a level in global sport to where parents are dedicating time, energy, money, governments, same thing to skateboarding, to surfing, to getting the best out of their quote-unquote young athletes. And as cold and disgusting as that sounds, it's true. <laughs> there's coaches. There's, I mean, it's it's happening now. They're training the skateboarders of the future. Yeah, I didn't actually view it that way with relation to the, the Olympics. But I'd say 
for the common man or the common woman to have that opportunity or even that dream that it's now in fact something that can be represented at the Olympics will go a huge way, especially just for the ignorant fan who's just watching the Olympics might stumble upon an event and be like, oh, hey, this is kind of cool. So with regards to that, that's obviously great. And the last last thing I want to touch on is, I know you mentioned it a little bit there, but you run your own podcast, the world's greatest action podcast. And I've heard you previously state that there is, albeit a few of them, it still is, in your view, one of the top ones. While I probably couldn't say that about mine, you could definitely probably say it about yours. So I'm just wondering, like, what, like, what made you start it? Was it someone else informed you, hey, you should really consider maybe doing a podcast? Or was it, as you were saying, having that free spirit YOLO lifestyle where you're like, you know what, I'm going to give it a crack. And hey, if some sponsorships and something good comes out of it, great. And if it's a complete failure, so be it. Yeah, I think it was uh, just myself becoming a, a fan of, podcasts in general more and more um and also kind of i had other ideas for other podcasts but then kind of seeing this uh opening i guess in the in the what do you want uh, in that space right i didn't really yeah. know of any other action sports podcast they covered all uh, surf skate snow there's a bunch in surf bunch in skate of course and snow but you know, I, I set off to do it as a, a way to keep the tools sharp between events. My main gig being play-by-play commentator for surf, skate, snow events. So between events to be able to kind of just keep talking about all this stuff. I'm geeking out on it every day anyway. So this was a way to kind of keep that conversation going. Mm. Um, again, started it for fun. Meant to be a 15 to 20 minute podcast just with quick news hits. And eventually got my friend Todd Richards in. So him and I now do it. It's an hour and a half every Monday, mostly. Sometimes we take a week or two off. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, we have sponsors and stuff now. So it became a real thing. And uh, it's fun. I mean, we ju- I literally just finished it right before you called. So we got a little bit late start today. But it will be up later today. Yeah, well, that's the the hidden life of a podcaster where you've so many delays right. <laughs> and so many times where you're just like, oh, let's do it next week. I don't have the juice in me to, to do one hour. There's so many stupid complications that arise that you don't even know exist until they actually happen. Oh, my happen. God. Yeah, like accidentally um, not hitting record. <laughs> yeah. And, and Fun have stuff you ever- like that. <laughs> and has I know you do – podcast like was it a conscious decision not to do it with guests and i know you do other kind of interview slash podcasts where you maybe get surfers or skateboarders on but the main one you do as i said the world's greatest action podcast was there a reason why you don't consistently get guests on um like say guests that wouldn't normally come on um because of i wanted it to be super consistent once a week, every week. Uh, as you know, it's very hard to get guests on a consistent basis. Good guests. Yeah. I mean, you got me on your podcast. So obviously, <laughs> you're down your list of good guests. No, no, um, no, no. Trust me, you're quite high. You'd be probably <laughs> shocked. It'd be a good uh, self-esteem boost for you. It's, uh, you know, it, I, I've had shows in the past. I had a show when I was doing a magazine called Transworld Surf for 13 years. I had a show called Cote's Cube. 
where I just mm. interviewed basically the surfers and industry people that came into the office. And that was just kind of by chance. Um, tried to kind of make that a bigger thing. And we realized the, the hardest thing to do was to get a guest, especially in our world. People are all, you know, spread out Australia, Hawaii, Brazil, wherever. It's hard to get solid guests in, in our, in my world locked in to a place. Uh, even, you know, this is the first time I've actually used this, uh, software that we're using. You and I are talking, communicating through right now. This is kind of yeah. cool. Um, but you know, again, I, I feel like looking at other podcasts in, in my space that not on my space in my <laughs> action sports space that, uh, you know, Joe Rogan, Mark Marin, these guys are getting freaking Barack Obama on their podcast as a guest. Yeah. They're getting, you know, they're getting these incredible guests. And I, I feel like, you know, wanted to carve out my own, our, our, our own niche in this world. So the guests that we do have on, we'll just call, we'll cold call them during the podcast. Um, and we get some crazy, you know, cool people. We had Travis Rice the other day and this is just going, Hey, we're going to, let's call this guy. And we call yeah. them. Sometimes they answer, sometimes they don't. But, you know, that's kind of our way of getting quick little snippets of guests in there. I have people call in with reports from wherever they're at. So, you know, it, again, it's just more of this kind of like news and entertainment take on action sports, not having to rely on a guest to, um, to, to do the show because we want to be able to do it from wherever we're at. Mm. So, yeah, so it, it is by design to where we could do it. I mean, I could do it alone. It's not as entertaining. Um, and I used to do it alone. So Todd and I together feel like we're, we're, we're good enough. Yeah. Sometimes, well, no, sometimes we add people. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes not so much, but yeah, like I only did my first one. This is the 39th episode, I think. And I only did my first solo one last week. Um, but as you were saying, like having guests on, as opposed to having a consistent product with you, as you said, it could be tough because sometimes I might be doing a podcast with someone from Australia and it'll be five in the morning here and I'll get an email at five minutes to five saying, oh, sorry, something's popped up. We'll have to do it another time. And I've had two coffees and I won't get any sleep and it's an absolute nightmare. But um, less about my uh, trials and tribulations. The last, last part of uh, the podcast is a quick fire round, Chris. So I'll ask you a handful of questions, nothing too uh, personal or too tricky, but the first thing you can think of, just spit it out. And as I always say, there is kind of a, uh, a kind of terms, conditions. If it could get you into legal trouble, I can always edit it out, but that hasn't happened thus far, so hopefully it will be all right. I'll do my best. Um, so first one is if you could have, and this is what we're just talking about, if you could have one person to be a guest on your podcast, who would it be? Um, David Bowie. Okay. Uh, your favorite film of all time? Romancing the Stone. Okay, so this is marry one, keep one, and kill one. F, actually, marry, kill. <laughs> yeah, so I actually feel bad asking this, but surfing, music, and skateboarding. Marry one, kill, keep one, and kill one. Okay, I'm going to marry music. Uh, I'm going to kill skateboarding because <laughs> it's really hard. And I'm going to keep surfing because I think you can surf till you're like 80 years old or something. Um. Well, I, 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 I hate to kill skateboarding, but 
I'm going to marry music because you can do that anywhere at any time. Yeah. Uh, your favorite skateboarder ever. Ooh, my favorite skateboarder ever. Um, gosh, that changes on a daily basis. So why don't I just say for now, um, Dylan Reader. Okay. Uh, the favorite book you've ever read. Favorite book I've ever read. Wow, that's a that is a big one. Um <laughs> I'm just gonna go with the last really awesome book I read. Uh it's called The Border. Um it's by an author named Don Winslow. And it's the third in a trilogy of books about the Mexican American drug war and the uh, the drug cartels and DEA and these three books are just out of control and they're they're based on true facts but the names have been changed to protect okay. the innocent and or guilty so the border by Don Winslow good shout and third last one if you could give me one guest to have on my podcast who would it be Ooh, one guest for your podcast. Um, yeah. Let's just shoot for the top. I'm just going to go Tony Hawk. Tony Hawk. Okay. I might have to bombard him on all social media and email platforms. So, Yeah, hit him uh, up. <laughs> second last one, best Blink-182 song. Uh, best Blink-182 song. The one about the uh, building the pool. <laughs> the 15-second masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I loved that song. It was pretty gas, yeah. And the last one and the toughest one, sum yourself up in three words. Positive, hardworking, which is one word if you have a hyphen in the middle. Yeah, get the hyphen um, in there. Let's uh, and positive, hardworking, uh, curious. Curious. <laughs> get <Okay>. curious. <laughs> yeah. Curious. <laughs> Good. Well, um, Chris, isn't that that wraps things up on my end? So I just want to thank you for taking time out to chat about the many different things we got to talk about. And I'll do all the listeners who are interested in your work or your podcast, stuff like that. I'll have that in the link below on all my platforms. So anyone who's interested in catching up in Chris's work or even what he's up to, I'll uh, leave all the respective links. But Chris, um, thanks a million for taking your time out and hopefully you have uh, a better few days from a weather perspective coming up. And um, yeah, I look forward to seeing what you get up to over the next few months. Hey, it is my pleasure, honor, and I'm flattered to be on your podcast. So thank you so much. Um, I can't wait. To, I, I got to get to Ireland sooner rather than later. So hopefully I'll meet you in person soon. Yeah, that's. Uh, I've said that to two or three people. I've only got to do it once with one of my guests but it's uh definitely if you can All get right. over here we'll make a pact test, yeah we'll make a test pact. test on. the cold waters and the aggressive vicious waves of ireland and um perfect yourself <laughs> <laughs> right on thanks brother yeah.